our experiences can be different, but we can still have very rich and fulfilling experiences. And, you know, I think for, for my journey, and I know other people with disabilities that I've talked with would say the same thing, that um, in some ways the disability has enriched our experience and, and our stories. Um, in my case, it's definitely something that has enriched uh, my overall story. Hey folks, welcome to Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. Uh, Gosh, before we get into today's episode, which is actually from Without Compromise, my other show, but I just wanted to share it because it has to do with our Two for the Trail program at Athletic Brewing. If you don't know, that's my day job working with Athletic Brewing. We make non-alcoholic craft beer and 2% of all of our sales get donated to park and trail cleanups, which is awesome because, you know, half the stories from this show come from national parks and uh, different outdoor you know, recreation areas really. And so 2% of all our sales go to those places. And this year we are setting aside, we we're already know that we're going to get ha- at least half a million dollars for that program. And we're going to, uh, to, to do a grant with it. So if you know of an organization out there, um, in the U S or in Canada that could use some money for a project they're doing, something that's trail-based, something that's outdoor access-based, please have them go to athleticbrewing.com and apply. We're giving away half a million dollars um, between essentially now and June uh, with more money coming at the end of the year. So uh, please send them there. It's called our Two for the Trails program. Um, And speaking of athletic brewing, uh, I was able to go to my very first Spartan race this weekend. It's an obstacle course race. If you've ever heard of Spartan, um, huge thing. And and the first one this year was in Jacksonville, not terribly far away. So I decided to go up and help hand out beer to people crossing the finish line. And so many people were like, oh my gosh, athletic brewing. I heard about this on Adventure Sports Podcast. How cool is that? It was so cool to meet y'all out there and see some of the community. Um, you know, you, you, you forget sometimes when you're talking to yourself in your closet uh, with just a computer screen that's lighting the, the, the closet up, you forget that people actually listen to this. And so it was cool to see just some folks out there who are fans of the show. So y'all know who you are. And uh, yeah, just trying to connect all the dots. But anyway, um, this story, Wesley's story, which is the subject of today's episode, is uh, Wesley is works for American Hiking Society. He's one of the partners with us uh, through our Two for the Trail program at Athletic Brewing. I know I'm throwing like a lot of different things at you, but um, that's kind of how all these dots are connected. Um, but Wesley's incredible. Uh, he has through hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. He has climbed all of Colorado's 14ers. And the biggest challenge of all in a lot of ways is the fact that he has cerebral palsy. And uh, obviously he doesn't let that stop him from doing some pretty incredible things. So we're going to hear his story. And I really encourage you to check out his short film. It's about 13 minutes long. There's a link in the show notes. It just helps you visualize what the experience was like. And he tells it in a really, really beautiful way. And obviously it's a there's a pretty crazy thing that happens in his story that we'll get into, um, but he talks about that as well in the film. So please go check out his website, uh, follow American Hiking Society, follow Athletic Brewing, and uh, yeah, just a just an amazing story 
all around from Wesley. So thanks, Wesley, for being on the show. And without further ado, here he is. Doing well. Thanks for having me, Mason. I appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. I always ask this first. Where are you coming from today? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, right now, um, I am on the front range of Colorado in a small town called uh, Fluorescent. Fluorescent. All right. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. Used to be. That's uh, that's awesome, man. So um, just tell us a little bit about you know where you grew up. You're a native to Colorado, right? Yeah, um, I grew up um, in Colorado. My family, my mom's side of the family has been around for several generations. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I grew up in the small town of Woodland Park, not too far from where I currently uh, live. Um, and kind of through that experience, you know, I had lots of access to the outdoors. So I felt very uh, privileged to be able to have um, some amazing trails and mountains uh, within short drives of where I grew up. You know, these mountains, these amazing places are kind of your backyard. Did did they feel like something that was, you know, accessible as a kid? Because, you know, I lived in Denver for a while and there were there was those kind of those folks in town in the city that that didn't get out there much. I mean, my wife's an elementary school teacher and like half the kids don't ever go to the mountains. What What was your family like? Yeah, so I grew up in a family that was uh, very outdoorsy. Um, in fact, um, I like to tell the story that uh, my parents carried me up my first uh, 14,000 foot peak when I was just a toddler. Um, they uh, carried me up um, to the top of Mount Yale. And I, you know, like to consider that my very first um, uh, adventure um, above treeline and kind of set the trajectory for, for the rest of my life. Oh my gosh. So, so you came from an adventurous family. I mean, I'm sure you don't remember that experience because you were so young, but they, that ha- that obviously made an impact on you. That's really cool. Yeah, I definitely don't remember it. Um, I've only seen a handful of old um, film photos of kind of that trip. So don't remember that. But then, you know, just spending um, summers in the mountains a lot of times. And uh, uh, when I was in uh, ninth, or excuse me, when I was nine, um, my parents and my sister and I climbed um, our first 14er as a family. Uh, which was uh, Mount Princeton, which was a very incredible experience, um, especially for me. Um, so a little bit of my backstory, um, I was born with a mild form of uh, cerebral palsy that kind of limits uh, my fine motor control and uh, just coordination on the right half of my body. Um, and so making it to the top of uh, uh, Mount Princeton and that experience, I think, was a really um empowering experience that has kind of in many ways also kind of set the trajectory for where I've gone in, in life. So your, your cerebral palsy was, was evident pretty early on. Like it was, you know, I know it smiled, like you said, but it's, uh, it was showing itself and you had to deal with it from the beginning. And so climbing that mountain so young was like a huge, a huge boost for you, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, growing up, you know, trying to do like the typical like physical activities, like even small things like like learning to tie my shoes, um, you know, playing sports in PE or doing, um, 
you know, like t-ball or any type of uh, recreation sports, like those things were always a challenge for me. And Mount Princeton was was definitely a challenge, um, but it was something that I could do and kind of felt um, like I wasn't around a lot of kids, so I didn't feel like I was being uh, judged. Or uh, I'm not saying that kids a lot of times judged me per se, but um, you know, you know, just when people are like looking. Um, at you and you just know that they know that you know that you're different and uh, so kind of being in the um, the backcountry away from other kids or just other people in general was um, a relief and kind of allowed me to kind of find um, who I am as an individual. It was that time in nature man that is that is powerful stuff so you climbed that first mountain you felt super empowered realize what you could do. How did it grow from there? Were, were you, you know, hooked in the outdoors? Were you doing other things? What was the trajectory that you were talking about earlier? Yeah. So, um, a number of years, there's a couple of years between my first 14 er and, and the second group of 14 ers that I climbed, uh, when I was a little bit older, um, two years older, uh, and, uh, that experience getting above tree line, I kind of, uh, got into this groove um, that, I've, that I had never experienced before of kind of feeling like I was doing some like doing really well at something that I didn't anticipate being uh, feeling comfortable with. And yeah, so, you know, I, I would say at age 11, realizing that I felt felt kind of like my fullest potential when I was above tree line, which was kind of an interesting experience to have. And so you know, from there, it was just a matter of, you know, my family doing, uh, my family or, or my dad and I, you know, setting out on different 14-year adventures um, for, um, for, from year to year, mostly climbing just obviously uh, in the, the summertime. And then it was in kind of the, uh, my high school years, sometime in the high school years, I kind of realized that I, w- I wanted to set like the goal of climbing all. There's 54 um, or 58, um, 14ers, depending on who you ask, um, in Colorado. And so I kind of set that goal sometime when I was in high school, I don't have a specific date for when I decided I wanted to do it. And so started to just kind of continue to work on summoning these different, uh, 14,000 foot peaks, which became a major part of my story along the way. After graduating high school, my dad and I were coming down off of a relatively challenging peak called uh, Creestone Needle. And we were coming down and uh, we came across a trail crew that was uh, working on some uh, on kind of the lower section of the trail. And we started talking with them and realized that they were college age students um, out doing trail work for the summer. Um, and that that interaction was also a key um, experience in my life of having that conversation and realizing that regular people could do trail work because before that I'd never thought too much. I assumed that, you know, the government, you know, paid, um, people to go out and make trails. And I had never really thought too much about it, but seeing those kind of young, younger kids, I mean, they were older than I was at the time doing that, that trail work really, uh, inspired me. So when I went to college, I applied for, uh, to work for a trail crew, with uh, Rocky Mountain Youth Corps, I was wasn't sure like what uh, how that experience would turn out. I wasn't even sure that uh, RMYC would give me a call back because you know with someone with cerebral palsy trying to do physical uh, labor in kind of high alpine conditions isn't uh, something that 
most people think of. But luckily, they hired me, and I I was thrilled about the experience, and so I went back um, all four years during school um, to to do trail work across uh, the Rocky Mountains. So giving back to the trails was was it was an early passion for you. Now you do it for a career. Yeah, what so those experiences, what did that start leading you into doing that trail work over the summer? Yeah, so I think it really opened my eye to just doing conservation work as a whole, which definitely led me, you know, to where I am at now with American Hiking Society, um, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit. Um, but also um, so kind of that experience I realized of giving back to trails and, and building things that would last longer than my lifetime and really kind of understanding that um, that legacy of kind of leaving uh, the places I love uh, better than than they were when I w- was there was something that I, became a passion for me and is something that I'm um, really excited about right now. You know, there's uh, you know, there's more than four, uh, 48 million people in the U.S. that go out for hikes each year, um, and yet only a small fraction of those people do trail service. Um, and so I'm really passionate about sharing my story to get people to consider, you know, giving back uh, to uh, the trails and the wild places that they love to recreate in. So that's something we, we talk about a lot here at Athletic is, is making it better take care of these places that, that we enjoy. Um, but, but I'd love to ask you about, uh, your, 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 um, the 54, uh, 14ers that you climbed. When did it become apparent to you that you wanted to do them all? Um, if you don't mind me asking about this, by the way, I'd love to, I'd love to talk about that story of, of doing them all. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it was literally almost a two-decade project. Um, if you consider my, you know, when I first started climbing 14ers when I was nine, um, so it took almost two decades to complete the project. Um, it wasn't until high school that I realized that I wanted to take on the whole the whole list. Partly because I knew there were a few uh, difficult peaks, um, and for those people who don't know. Um, of the 54 uh, 14ers, about two-thirds of them um, are mostly just hiking trails. In kind of the mountaineering world and climbing world, uh, there's a classification system that goes from one to five. So one is just simple, like hiking on trails, and then class five is like technical, like vertical climbing. And so about two-thirds of the 14ers kind of fall in the class one and two categories. Um, and then there's, you know, that other third that are class three and four, um, which require more scrambling. You're using all four, um, uh, you're on all four for different times. Um, really have to kind of be careful monitoring uh, the risk of falling and things along those lines. Um, so it wasn't until like high school uh, timeframe um, that I began to get into a few of the more difficult ones to realize that like, I felt comfortable enough, though it was a very slow process to kind of build um, up enough experience to feel comfortable in, uh, for me especially, with kind of uh, my lack of coordination and lack of strength on the right side of my body, um, building that confidence took a, a lot of time. So in, my, in high school, I was able to do a couple of the, the class three 
peaks and realized, okay, I think I think I have what it takes um, as long as I take it slow and and try to uh, mitigate the, the inherent risks of mountaineering with cerebral palsy um, and kind of began uh, focusing on climbing the 14 years. So every summer, my dad and I would would plan to climb a few. Um, and there'd be a few years that um, that I wouldn't get to any because I was doing um, other trips or um, other um, adventures. So I took a few years off to do some some long distance hiking. And so, you know, that added to just the overall length of, of the project, taking more time since I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, you know, some people are really dedicated to like knocking off, um, you know, some of them, some people do all 54 in just one summer um, or shorter periods of time. Um, but for me, it was just kind of um, like I would do them when I could. And I really enjoyed doing most of them uh, with my father in most cases um, as well. So yeah, that was kind of what the project, the, what the overall project looked like for me. You're being a little modest. You took off a few years to do some long distance hiking. You threw hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. You know, I don't want to go too too far on a tangent, but that's an experience of a lifetime for a lot of people. That is like an enormous um, achievement in most people's lives. And I know it is for you as well, but, but that's not even, I mean, that's just a fraction of the, some of the things you've accomplished that had to be just such an incredible experience. Were you apprehensive at all with having cerebral palsy going into a, you know, multi thousand mile through hike? <laughs> Great question. Yes. Uh, so the summer before I did the PCT, um, I through hiked the Colorado Trail, which is about a little bit less than 500 miles here in Colorado. And so that I would say was uh, getting my feet wet for long distance hiking. And the Colorado Trail was an amazing experience. Um, I felt really prepared for it and um, just had an incredible hike. And so the following year, um, due to some like unforeseen circumstances, uh, like some some like grad school kind of fell through and I wasn't sure what I was kind of doing for the next couple of years. So I decided that I would attempt uh, to do um, the Pacific Crest Trail the following summer. And I felt like after doing the Colorado Trail that I had you know some idea what I was doing when it came to long distance um, through hiking. But it became apparent very quickly on the PCT that... Um, that I wasn't sure I was even going to be able to finish the PCT. Um, it was kind of funny on the Colorado Trail. I literally, for 500 miles, I had like no blisters, uh, no problems with my feet or legs. But within 60 miles of of starting the Pacific Crest Trail, um, I was a complete wreck. Um, in fact, I had to take two or three days off um, the trail just because my right ankle and foot were giving me some issues. Um, and so I was very close to having to, to abandon the project within, you know, 60 miles of the start, um, in Southern California. Um, luckily, um, I was after taking some days off and kind of slowing my pace a little bit, um, I was able to keep going and still had a couple, um, interesting moments in Southern California that I was still afraid, um, at, after about 350 miles, I had another issue with my right knee, uh, again, the side with cerebral palsy that I thought might take me off trail. Um, but luckily, again, I was able to kind of work through that and um, was able to, to complete the trail, which was, um, like you said, once in a lifetime type of opportunity for many people. And yeah, it was, 
each day it took me 139 days, not that anyone was counting. Um, but each of those days, you know, there was incredible joy and incredible beauty, but also moments of like trial and, um, and suffering, um, whether that's in the triple degree temperatures in Southern California and in Northern California, um, or, you know, some of the snowy passes in the high Sierras, you know, I feel like the more I progressed on the trail, the more I felt confident, but also like realized like all the time things were changing and you kind of had to adapt. And uh, yeah, throughout the entire trail, there was definitely moments that that were yeah pure joy, but then also moments that that were, you know, kind of scary in terms of not, not knowing if I was going to be able to make it or uh, or whatnot. And so, yeah, it was something that I hope I will never forget. And um yeah, fondly look back on. Absolutely. Incredible achievement. I know there's a small or short documentary folks can watch about it. We're going to plug all that. And, uh, and also that your most recent, uh, documentary about finishing the 54 fourteeners. Do you want to tell that story about, about finishing and what that was like and getting to the last peak on the maroon bells? Yeah. So in terms of the 14er project. Um, I basically, before I set off on uh, the Pacific Crest Trail, I had done 50 of the 54 peaks that I was kind of going for. Yeah, I was almost done. Uh, and then I came back from the PCT hoping, you know, in the next year or two that I would be able to, uh, to tackle those last four uh, 14ers. And just due to just the way life was going for me. I didn't have the opportunity for a couple of years to, to, to tackle a couple of them. And so, um, I was able to, to knock out, uh, all like all of them, but the last two, which were, uh, the maroon bells, which are two of the more technical, uh, and more difficult, um, and dangerous 14ers after a number of years of like, uh, having bad, like scheduling a trip and having bad weather, um, basically changed my plans um, with my dad. Um, in 2016, uh, my dad and I had several weeks blocked out on our calendar to, to make the climb. And uh, my dad that summer was having some hip issues and he let me know that he just wouldn't be able to, to safely do the bells, uh, which kind of devastated me because I was really hoping to finish uh, the 14ers uh, with my father. I thought that would be a great way to finish it. Totally. And so I was I was hoping to... Uh, I, I thought about like waiting another year and trying to do them with my father. But at the same time, since my, since my dad's hip was um, kind of giving him problems, I wasn't sure if um, he would be up for it uh, the following year either. Um, there was like no guarantee that he, that he would, he would want to do that. And so I decided to put out a request um, on a local climbing forum to see if anyone would be interested in, in doing the 14er with me. Um, and there was a couple of people who expressed interest, um, and I talked to several of them on the phone and connected with a, a guy named Steve. And uh, Steve had done all the 14ers, uh, most of them multiple times, and uh, um, he had led uh, several trips with the Colorado Mountain Club up the Maroon Bells and had done the Traverse. There's what's called the Traverse between North Maroon and, and Maroon peak that is uh class four like nearly technical 
um, traverse. Um, in fact, I, I think some people even rank it as uh, class five uh, technical traverse um, that he had done uh, twice before. Um, so he had like lots of experience and I felt really com comfortable um, connecting with him and uh, setting out to do the 14ers with someone who uh, had done them because route finding on those on the moon bells is tricky because it's very rotten rock and Karen's kind of disappear and corrode, which are um, a wayfinding uh, device on uh, alpine terrain. And, and so I was just pretty excited um, to connect with Steve. And um, just a few days after we connected on the phone, we, we rendezvoused in, uh, uh, in near Aspen at a campground just outside uh, um, from where the uh, Maroon Bells were or are. <laughs> and uh, we set up the, the the next morning to do uh, Maroon Peak, uh, which was an amazing experience. I had been up uh, Maroon Peak once before. I had made it to 13,000 feet, a little over 13,000 feet with my dad uh, a number of years before, but just had bad weather. And so we turned around. And so um, we made it to kind of the more technical section. And uh, Steve and I were just in the zone. Uh, for those people who haven't been um, above treeline or kind of in a very um, – uh, class three or class four experience above treeline, um, it's it it make it puts you in the moment. You can't really be thinking about the future or the past. Uh, you really have to focus on what you're doing, where you're putting your hands and feet, and making sure you're not knocking uh, loose rocks down onto other climbers or whatnot. So we were definitely in, in the zone for uh, most of that climb and made it to the top of uh, Maroon Peak and discussed. Um, what we had discussed before about if, if we were, if we both felt that we were kind of at the peak of our ability or feeling really good about it, that we would uh, consider doing the traverse. And so we had talked about it um, and we decided to do the traverse, um, which is very committing because like basically once you commit to the traverse, there's no turning back. Um, you basically, it's kind of a one way trip, so to speak, uh, just because there's not um, places to escape from the route because it is so technical and, and a lot of cliffs and loose terrain. Um, so we committed to that. Yeah, it, it, for those listening, it's like a knife edge between the two peaks that you have to, to get. It's like a bridge, but it's a very dangerous, narrow, rocky path from one peak to the other. And like you said, once you commit, it's impossible nearly to turn back. Yeah, and and so like that, that like thought definitely kind of turned my stomach a little bit knowing I was going to be facing some of the most challenging terrain I had faced on, on my entire 14 year project. Mm. Um, but I felt confident in, you know, in my overall experience that I would be able to do it. And with Steve's ability to do route finding, um, I thought um, that it would be a great way. Like it, it would be an amazing way to end the project um, to, to do both the bells in a single day. And so we, we pushed on and, and the traverse was, uh, I felt like Steve definitely uh, underplayed his description of the route that he'd done before because it was definitely a lot of loose ledges and kind of scrambling up different cliff bands. Um, and it was, it took, uh, the maroon bells are only about a quarter mile as the crow flies, um, but it took us uh, like, I think about three, more than three hours, I believe, to make make that quarter mile trip because of the train is just so, um, so steep um, and, and the route finding is uh, a challenge. You, you might go up a certain gully or across a, 
a rocky ledge and then get cliffed out and then have to backtrack um, to to make to to find a a route that was not uh, technical. Um, and so we made it to the top of North Maroon, which, as as you can imagine, was um, pretty emotional for me to to finish my fifty four fourteen year project on North Maroon. Um, so we took some pictures, um, but then pretty quickly realized like we needed to start heading down because we only had three or four hours of daylight left and we wanted to be off the steep um, terrain before the sun went down. And so we started going down uh, and North Maroon has, is, uh, ha- is considered a class four uh, climb. Uh, the peak we went up is class three. So we were going up or we went up a slightly easier section and then we're going down um, a more difficult stretch. And so, you know, we were taking our time going down these kind of loose gullies um, and things were going uh, well and kind of um, looking forward to getting back down to just the regular trail. And we were getting close to the uh, the bottom of uh, of kind of the technical or not technical climbs, but the scrambling sections. We had one last down climb to get back down to just where, where the regular trail was. Unfortunately, on that down climb, I went down this uh, it's a pretty short cliff section that I went down and I was standing on, you know, what a, a regular hiking trail basically at that point. Um, and unfortunately, um, when Steve was coming down, he kind of lost his footing and uh, tumbled down that section um, out of my sight. And uh, at that point, I realized that uh, the experience was quickly changing into into kind of a traumatic experience that that this was no longer just a regular day in the mountains that um, that things yeah things progressed uh, very quickly out of our control at, at that point once I realized I couldn't see Steve I had a spot device um, which for those people who don't know it's a GPS transmitter that you can uh, send preset messages to people and and so I was um, using that to let people know that that we were doing um, okay, uh, and I would send out signals when we got to each of the peaks. Um, and then it also has an SOS uh, capability that you can hit an SOS button that basically alerts um, search and rescue to let them know that that you are in in trouble. Um, so I sent, um, turned on the SOS of the GPS because I knew. Um, I didn't know where I hadn't. I didn't know where Steve was, but I knew like no matter what, that um, best case scenario, he would probably have like a sprained ankle or something that would still need to like w- would need help to get out of that situation. I climbed down to Steve, um, and unfortunately, when I got to him, it was apparent that he had already uh, passed away um, in the fall. Um, and so after after kind of getting my bearings and, and kind of assessing the situation, I realized it was, it was going to be dark pretty soon. So I had to, I had to make the decision to hike out on my own, uh, which was an incredibly, uh, the most challenging thing that I've ever experienced in life. Um, yeah, what was going through your mind then? Like what were you, I can't even imagine. Yeah, uh, a lot of things, uh, a lot of guilt and shame and kind of just like darkness. Um, as I got back to the trail, I kind of uh, traversed back over to where the trail was. And by that time, it was starting to get dusk and starting to get dark. Um, and so 
Um, yeah, so that experience, like trying trying to not allow the the guilt and shame to completely like crush me in in that moment was was a challenge, and and I had to like just uh, try not to. I had to not think too much about the situation um, just because, yeah, it was almost like the, the um, yeah, almost too much to handle in some ways. And so um, because of that, um, I had to kind of think about like my family and not allow kind of the negative thoughts about shame or guilt, um, like feeling like that. It was like something that I did wrong that caused the situation. Um, and so made my way out and then, uh, ran into a couple of climbers on my way out that I had, uh, that we had been on the mountain with for a while, uh, which was a major relief to be with uh, other people, to be able to like tell them what happened and explain the situation and, and continue to hike out to, to basically meet, meet up with uh, the sheriff and search and rescue team. Um, so the experience, you know, after that, it took, you know, there was a very, a very traumatic experience that, took months for me to like begin to like uh, kind of uh, wrestle with and realize that it wasn't um, that no matter um, how things played out, that, that there's only so many things that I could control um, and that Steve and I were both doing what we loved. And, uh, you know, North Maroon, he agreed to climb with me because uh, North Maroon was one of his favorite peaks. Um, and so, you know, he died doing what he loved on one of his favorite mountains. And and I think that um, and talking with his family and kind of beginning to cope with that uh, took many months um, to wrestle through and to kind of allow some healing. Uh, and so I think through that process, uh, learned a lot more about myself and realizing um, how much I had to depend on others, like having support from my friends and family was absolutely critical. Um, to get through that. And so it was definitely a long process. Um, and so um, part of what why I wanted to tell my 14er story is also realizing that it's more than just my story in many facets. And so a year after Steve passed away, in fact, it was just a year and six days after the accident, uh, my wife and I um, had our first child or our only child at this point which was um, an incredible experience. And shortly after uh, Camille was born, we started going out on hikes just around uh, where we lived at the time. And uh, just spending time outside with the family was incredibly rewarding to be able to share my love for the, of the outdoors uh, with my daughter, even though she didn't obviously understand or um like know what what we were doing all of the time, uh, but, but that was incredible for me. And then thinking through it, um, uh, talking to my wife and my parents about it, I realized my parents carried me up Mount Yale when when I was just an inf or a toddler, basically. And so I decided that um, I wanted to do a fourteener uh, with with Camille and my wife and and parents. And so we. Uh, we made plans. We, I wanted to do Mount Yale because I thought that that would be fitting to kind of bring the story back to where it all began. Um, unfortunately, the road up to Mount Princeton was closed that summer. So we decided to climb Huron Peak, which is another peak just a few miles south of Mount uh, Yale. 
And it took a couple of attempts. We attempted it once as a family, and the conditions above treeline were uh, just too windy for Camille um, the first time. And so we did it again. And um, thankfully, uh, we were all able to get uh, to the summit safely and, and, uh, and sharing that with my parents and basically three generations of my family um, being on top of a 14er was, yeah, was one of the best experiences of my life. Um, so that after that experience, realized that I wanted to make a short film kind of uh, about my 14er story um, and, uh, and kind of began that process of, of writing the story. And that took, you know, many months, several years actually to keep writing and rewriting uh, the story to finally get to a place that I felt like I could talk about it and, and be okay with the story and to share that with um, people. It's a powerful story, and it's a great film. Um, I've watched it a handful of times now, and uh, just just wild experience, man. What what do you think the whole experience of doing all the fourteeners and, and how it ended, and how you've processed that? How, what has that taught you about life? What What do you think the biggest lesson has been, or one of them? Yeah, that's a great question, Mason. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I've learned quite a bit. Um, about myself and just um, learning to cope and adapt to uh, cerebral palsy. Um, you know, sometimes like when I'm up in the mountains, I, I feel like, you know, sometimes I ask myself if it's foolish to be up there, like doing what I'm doing uh, with cerebral palsy, because there is inherent risk with that. Um, but for me, you know, going back to that sense that I feel most alive when I'm above tree line is what kind of draws me to these experiences, but also realizing um, being okay with uh, with my weakness um, and with my disability um, and embracing that, I think has been an interesting experience because I feel like we live in a culture that is averse to weakness. We always want to talk about our strengths and we always want to, you know, we talk about pushing through to 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 achieve things. But I think for me, I think they're, the title of the, the video, Within Weakness, kind of encompasses, I feel like, the lesson that I want to share with people, that, um, that I think it's okay to like, embrace our weakness, because I think, uh, you know, I think there's an interesting dichotomy or a, a paradox, so to speak, um, between strength and weakness, that sometimes uh, within weakness, I think we can find great strength that is within ourselves and, ex- and external to us as individuals. Um, and sometimes, you know, same thing with uh, strength. Sometimes uh, when we live within our strengths, uh, those strengths can easily kind of become hindrances or weaknesses. Um, and so for me, it, it was kind of embracing that idea that, um, that it's okay if I uh, don't always have what it takes, um, that I can find uh, strength and I can find um, contentment with like who I am as an individual and, and my identity. Um, and realizing that the outcomes of these accomplishments isn't um, based on, or my identity, my identity isn't uh, confined to to my uh, disability, but it's also not uh, defined uh, by my accomplishments. And so I think just like living within that of, of finding the joy of being out there and kind of embracing kind of those weaknesses and that struggle, um, I think is something that I've something that I'm sure I'll continue to kind of 
work on and, and explore uh, for the rest of my life. Um, but it's something that I think people, I don't know, sometimes overlook that, you know, sometimes we o- only want to put our best foot forward and we only want to, we only want people to see us in our best uh, state. And uh, yeah, I think that's the takeaway. What do you think your the biggest misconception folks have about about cerebral palsy and living with it? Um, that's a, another great question, Mason. Um, I think I think a lot of times, you know, people tend to to like look down on on people with disabilities in certain ways. Maybe not maybe not in a like negative way. Um, and, and even in myself, sometimes I'm like, I play like the what if game of like, oh, like what if I didn't have cerebral palsy? Like if I can do the 14ers with CP, like what would I be, or the PCT with CP, what could I do without C, without, without cerebral palsy? And, and I have to like kind of catch myself and not, um, not allow my mind to kind of play those what ifs because I don't think it's always uh, positive uh, to, to, to do that for just my mental state. But I think, I think the misconception is that, that there is like a lot of like opportunities that we miss or, or don't get to experience. Um, and you know, some of our experiences, people with disabilities, like our experiences can be different, but we can still have very rich and fulfilling experiences. And, you know, I think for, for my journey, and I know other people with disabilities that I've talked with would say the same thing, that um, in some ways the disability has enriched our experience and, and our stories. Um, in my case, it's definitely something that has enriched uh, my overall story. Absolutely. And you can't play those what-if games. I, I used to play basketball, and I, I'm tall. You know, people always said, man, if I was tall as you, I'd be in the NBA. And I was like, well, if I was fast as you, I'd be in the NBA because <laughs> I'm tall and slow. You're you're short and fast. I mean, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. We can play the what-if game to the nth degree if we want to. So there, it's futile. I think it's futile. But uh, so, so before we jump into rapid fire, Wesley, I'd love to ask you um, just a little bit about, you know, folks know about our Two for the Trail program. They hear about it. They know that we do, you know, we were doing cleanup events and trail work days, obviously, you know, you, 2020 happened. Tell us about, you know, you're, you're one of our partners at American Hiking Society. Tell us about what you do there and, and what American Hiking Society does. Then we'll get into rapid fire. Sounds great. Yeah. So American Hiking Society um, has been around for more than 40 years at this point. Um, and our mission is to empower all to um, enjoy, share, and preserve the hiking experience. How we work on achieving our mission kind of plays out in a variety of ways. Uh, one of those ways um, is through advocacy work. Um, we're based in D.C. and have always been based in D.C. Um, because we, do, uh, we work with the federal land managers and Congress when it comes to um, public uh, policy and legislation that affects um, hiking trails in public lands. So we're always uh, on the Hill advocating for funding um, and for the preservation of public lands. So in in addition to kind of the advocacy side of things, we also do a variety of of stewardship work. Um, We have a variety of of stewardship trail service uh, programs, um, including uh, volunteer vacations and alternative breaks, which are uh, week-long uh, trail service trips that take place all across the country. Um, in most years, uh, 
last year due to COVID and this year with COVID, we're somewhat limited in where we can go and what we can do this year. But in, in normal years, we'll do trips everywhere from Alaska to the Virgin Islands uh, and do those with college students for all for our alternative break program. And then uh, with um, mostly adults in the volunteer vacations program, um, as well as our flagship program of National Trails Day, which takes place every year on the first Saturday of June. Um, and, and there's more than a thousand of, of events all across the country um, in all 50 states. And about a quarter of those events are uh, stewardship based. So designed to get people out to give back and, and do trail maintenance or build new trails. Um, and so those are our kind of key programs. And we have a variety of other kind of smaller programs, but that's kind of the 30,000 foot view of what um, AHS does. And so it's great to have um, partners like Athletic Brewing um, that that want to give back to the to the places that so many people love to recreate. So we r really do appreciate Athletic Brewing's uh, sponsorship and uh, the work that that you guys allow us to do. And you know we had a lot of awesome plans uh, in mind for 2020 that didn't that didn't work out due to COVID and and other uh, circumstances. But we're definitely looking forward to. Um, getting back out there um, to host more more trips and yeah, continue to do uh, the work on the trails in addition to the continual work that we do uh, through advocacy uh, on the hill. You know, as cool as it would have been to do things together this year, we're still happy to just you know that that's that's cher the cherry on top, honestly. Uh, you know, it, the fact that we get to help is, you know, just making beer, making non-alcoholic beer, we can help trails. Like, how crazy is that? And that's just because we're helping folks like you do what you do. Um, and we're going to keep doing what we do. So if we're able to do something this year, that's going to be, that's just the cherry on top, man. Um, and For just sure. a quick side story. I actually learned about American Hiking Society way back in the day. I was in, I was in high school and I saw... A, an advertisement, not an advertisement. It was on the news about doing the alternative break program in college students were snow. Uh, they were like shoveling snow at the grand Canyon. And I, my mind was totally blown because one, I didn't realize you could do this for, uh, for spring break. And two, I had no idea that it snowed at the Grand Canyon because <laughs> I'm from, <laughs> I'm from you know Florida. They, we don't we don't even know where snow is. You know we just know it's up north somewhere. And I was like, the Grand Canyon's in the desert. How is it snowing there? And how is there feet of snow? But sure enough, um, little did I know all this stuff existed. But that was just a quick, quick anecdote. But that's where I awesome. learned about American Hiking Society. But yeah, let's jump right into rapid fire. Sounds great. Perfect. All right. Rapid fire number one. Uh, what is your biggest goal not yet achieved? I, I, I would love to do a, a through hike of some kind with my with my daughter at some point. Oh, how old is she? Uh, she's three now. So we have okay. <laughs> uh, many years to go before before we're ready for a through hike. So you but, can plan it. You got time to plan. Yes, we have time to plan. That is awesome. It, it, do, you, do you have a life motto of any sort or anything you, you try to keep in the front of your mind on a daily basis? Uh, not really, you know, really trying to focus on just um, loving my family well, I think is, is, is key and, and kind of everything else kind of needs to, to work into that somehow. And so 
uh, yeah, I would love to do a through hike with my daughter, but you know, if she's not into hiking or whatnot, I'm sure that there'll be other ways that we, we can connect, um, and that I can, uh, make sure that, that we have, um, awesome experiences together. Oh, that's awesome. Um, is there, is there anything you like to do on a daily basis that helps you, you know, stay on task or be the most effective, efficient person you can? Yeah. Uh, getting outside, um, you know, uh, being able, like, even if it's just for like 20 or 30 minutes, um, I realize that like the amount of stress, um, and anxiety to normal day life, especially during COVID and, and, and whatnot, um, being able to get outside, even if it's just a walk around the block, um, really helps, helps me stay, uh, stable. If I go too long without, um, without getting outside, um, I, I just, uh, don't perform well at work or, or do well with my family. I couldn't agree more. What would you say your proudest achievement is outside of, outside of hiking and climbing? <laughs> uh, great question. I don't know if it's related, but, uh, I've done a couple of, of, it's not exact, it's not hiking. I mean, it is hiking related, but, um, Building a section of the Continental Divide Trail is something that I'm super excited that people will be using that trail for, for decades and hopefully centuries to come. Um, and you know, I had a, a, an impact on that. And so that's something um, that I'm very uh, proud of. That is too cool. Maybe we can join uh, American Hiking Society out someday to, to, to help finish a trail of some sort. We'll see. Uh, yeah, sounds awesome. great. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, so to wrap this all up, uh, you know, our, our motto at athletic brewing is brew without compromise. And what we've realized is in order to do that, we have to live without compromise. You can't just, you know, it's gotta be who you are, not just something you do as a nine to five. Uh, what would, what, what is it to you to live without compromise? What does it mean to you? Great question. I think the biggest part of that is loving uh, people and yourself well. To be able to do that is important uh, in order to live a life uh, that isn't compromised. Great answer. Well, Wesley, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for uh, just the continued support at American Hiking Society and I'm really looking forward to uh, many projects and, 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 and things that we'll be able to do together once this world opens up. But in the meantime, I'm glad that nature is getting um, getting the attention from y'all and getting uh, getting a little break from folks. And uh, yeah, it's always going to be there. You know, nature isn't canceled. <laughs> Thanks again for uh, having us. And, you know, we appreciate all that you guys do for your uh, two for the trail program. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.